0: Ten years ago, the idea of physical addiction to cannabis was absolutely laughable. That people would be having psychotic episodes just from THC,
1: unfathomable. Ben Court is the CEO of the Foundry Treatment Center and author of Weed Inc: The Truth About the Pot Lobby, THC, and the Commercial Marijuana Industry.
0: If one pictures their body as the cannabis plant, originally THC was about the size of our big toe by the mid 2000s was about up to our knee and now we have thc available
1: products that are past our eyes ben court is now fighting back against a multi-billion dollar industry that he says turned a once natural relatively harmless plant into a highly addictive psychosis inducing narcotic would i rather have it in the black market
0: oh yeah give me a drug dealer to a corporate executive with an mba any day
1: Ben Court, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here, Ben. So, weed or marijuana or pot is not something you typically associate with psychosis, okay? And I've been reading a number of uh, magazine articles. Um, we've had actually reports in the Epoch Times as well that there is this growing link, bizarrely. So tell me what's going on.
0: Well, 10 years ago, we really didn't see psychosis and cannabis use together. Um, But recently, I'll bet you we see 30 cases of THC-induced psychosis for every amphetamine. And let me break that down a little. THC is the language I'll use for marijuana, probably from here on out, because it's more accurate it's um the the chemical that gets you high inside of the cannabis plant, and traditionally drug induced psychosis was always associated with amphetamines, cocaine, methamphetamine um, until the last five or six years where THC has really taken over that because of how strong the
1: THC has gotten today. What is the difference between you know what was you know, used 20 years ago or 30 years ago or whenever this this whole process started and today like how, how is that different
0: um for your viewers who want to see these data the university of mississippi's kept a, a fantastic data table for us it's readily available but what we see beginning in 1960 um w- was that cannabis has always had about a half of a percent thc in it and starting in 1960 we see a a slow but steady rise in cannabis until the um 2010 2011 it's topping out at about 12 percent thc so considerably more than what naturally occurs inside of the cannabis plant but still not nearly enough to cause big problems if one pictures their their body as the cannabis plant originally thc was about the size of our big toe and um, interestingly the other chemical we really care about cbd was the same size but um by the mid 2000s it was about up to our knee and now we have thc available products that are past our eyes what and even marijuana itself well, the cannabis plant itself can't get much more than low 40% THC in it, um, but it's the products, the refined byproducts of the cannabis
1: plant. Psychosis and marijuana uh, are not something that you typically think of together. I want to dig into that a little bit more. Before I go there, addiction and marijuana are something that you don't typically think of together. In fact, you know, I remember years ago looking at studies that showed that it def- wasn't particularly physically addictive. But is that still the case? Like, I think you're making the case that it has become addictive. My case is simply read the data. So the, the, the
0: best study that we have for this, um, the, we had a big publication of it in 2012 that showed that addiction rates to THC were about 10%. And to your point, that's, it, it's not worth anything because 10% of the population is genetically predisposed to begin with. That same study was reported on again in October of 2020. And the addiction rates had gone from 10% to 30%. And the authors of the study, anytime you have something crazy like that happen in a longitudinal study, they're going to address it. So the authors said, it's our belief that this is just THC potency. 10 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, the idea of physical addiction to cannabis was absolutely laughable. It was not a thing. Um five years ago, the DSM, Diagnostical and Statistic Manual, that we have all of the mental health um, diagnostic criteria in, gave us objective diagnostic criteria for physical withdrawal from cannabis. Not only can you get physically dependent on it, but the withdrawal from cannabis is a really big deal
1: and something I see every single day working in treatment. So. How does this manifest? Maybe sort of give me some examples. Maybe we can look at psychosis, you know, and these break, and and then also just other symptoms that that come with this use of high-potency THC. So
0: psychosis is the separation when separation from reality. My reality differs from yours, and it can look like a lot of different things. There are two ways to get to psychosis. Let's just picture psychosis as a town. And there's two ways to get there. The first is organic. Um, You lost the genetic lotto. You had a lot of mental illness inside of your family, like I did. Um, You ended up developing it early in life, like I did. You end up there organically. The other way is chemically. You get to psychosis town because of chemicals that you introduced into your body. Traditionally, the chemicals that brought everybody there via this route were just amphetamines now it's cannabis again at at rates that are probably 30 to one this high potency thc is bringing people to this place which is a detachment from reality at a rate never conceived the idea that people would be having psychotic episodes and then psychotic breaks just from thc it, it was it was unfathomable 15 years ago Um, In its most extreme forms, it looks like schizophrenia, which are seeing things and hearing things that aren't there, audio and visual hallucinations. And the anxiety can be intense. Um, If if you've ever seen um, or had experience with or a loved one who had used amphetamines, Um, there's this idea that we have of the person using cocaine, um, like Scarface, where at the end, you know, he's just using cocaine and he's terrified and he's paranoid and he's got the gun and everybody's coming to get him. They really are in that film, but, and, and usually they're not. It's this paranoia that everyone's out to get me. I will not go through a week when I don't hear this story of a young person who has dismantled every electronic device in the house who has smashed their phone, taken all the light bulbs out of it to to double check for the listening devices because they are so paranoid that they're being spied on. Behavior consistent with amphetamine use, but it's only the THC. And one of my biggest desires would be if I could just ask people to watch what a psychotic episode looks like, all the funny and all the laughing would go out of it. And you certainly can on YouTube, just watch people consuming concentrates. Once you've had one psychotic episode, you're twice as likely to have another. It is causing these psychotic episodes in multiple cases, not just adding to them. People who never would have gone to psychosis, Um, about a quarter of them who end up there are ending up there just because of the THC. Mental illness, um, speaking as somebody who struggled with plenty of it in his life, is absolutely not a joke and not something to hold lightly. I do a monthly group inside of our program called um, THC and Recovery. The story you hear again and again, yeah, it used to be fun. When I was a kid I did it, now it's just paranoid, I was hearing voices, I thought I was going crazy, I thought I
1: couldn't breathe.
0: Yeah, we've totally bred all of the fun out of
1: cannabis. I I want to explore all the nuance of this because this is something that's obviously a very contentious issue today for many (laughs) folks. Um, But why don't you give me a bit of a picture of how you came into this um, in the first place?
0: Uh, Well, I'm somebody who's in long-term recovery myself and certainly used my fair share of that drug as well as quite a few others. but I never had any interest in having my recovery be any part of my vocation. And after leaving a nonprofit that was very near and dear to my heart, um, I, I, I took this issue on simply because I read the proposed legislation in Colorado. Okay. We passed Amendment 64 in 2012, and it was 3,666 words of just protection for an establishment of an industry. I didn't see what I thought in my generation as somebody, uh, I'm 43 and I'd always loved the idea of decriminalization, legalization, if you will. Um, I thought it was about social justice, freedom, uh, more of a libertarian mindset. It would turn out that it was about the creation of another vice industry and another opportunity to tax. To decriminalize cannabis is is very easy and has been done in most states in this country. In fact, in Colorado um, was done about 10 years before we passed Amendment 64, where possession of anything less than an ounce of cannabis was um, a parking ticket. You didn't even need to show up if they even wrote you anything. So in most of this country, um, small amounts of cannabis possession are absolutely not criminalized, which I'm a fan of, I like the idea. Um, This didn't have anything to do, Amendment 64 didn't have anything to do with decriminalization. What it was was, here are the standards that the industry will be allowed. Here are the maximum fines that you can ever give them. Here's how quickly you have to approve licenses. If you haven't approved them, um, it, by January, everybody who's got their licenses in is automatically approved. Um, you, you can't fine over X. Um, it really was just about the creation of a new business. Decriminalization is easy. Simply remove penalties for it commercialization takes real effort and commercialization make no mistake is the path that this country has been on and continues to run down
1: well so explain this to me I mean I live in New York City in the past few years a whole lot of these marijuana focused shops uh, have popped up there's many even between uh, you know where I live and and where I work which is not quite a quite a huge distance so you know are these you know mom and pop operations how is it that this is somehow a new thing that i wasn't aware of they they
0: started as mom and pop operations certainly um, but the vertical integration has been going on for quite some time now in the massive corporate takeover. In fact, as we sit here tonight, um, two days ago, the largest company in the world called Canopy um, just announced their uh, ascension onto the Canadian stock exchange in a hope to then be brought onto the US stock exchange. I mean, this is a multi-billion dollar industry that simply won't tolerate small players anymore the license itself a lot of the times is worth much more than the storefront of the dispensary Um, for example it it probably and i'm not up to date to it since covid but pre-covid to simply buy a license to sell cannabis in california was going to cost you five to seven million dollars not even a storefront nothing to go with it so you had a lot of small business owners end up originally with licenses and they kind of hit the lotto They could sell them to the much larger corporation. The larger corporation could come in and make money off of it. Um, And as far as the storefronts opening in your neighborhood, um, if you don't mind me making an assumption or two uh, about you, I would assume that you live in a nice neighborhood in New York and work in a nice area in New York. Um, There are certainly dispensaries there, but there will be a much higher number and concentration of dispensaries the poorer the neighborhoods are and the more ethnic minority the neighborhoods are made up of. Some fascinating pieces. The Denver Post did one called um, uh, Why Most Dispensaries Are Located in Poor Minority Neighborhoods. That's an exact quote. Um, There was one in a paper from out here, The Marijuana Industries War on the Poor. Um, I wrote a chapter about it, uh, about the incredible racial injustice of where these dispensaries end up. I think that the why really comes mostly from real estate zoning and cheap prices. I think it's why you have more liquor stores, um, check cashing facilities, convenience stores in poor minority neighborhoods because it's easier to open storefronts there. Um, If somebody wanted to open a liquor store in in my neighborhood, um, which is upper middle class neighborhood, we would fight to keep them out and you know when people are living paycheck to paycheck and they just don't have that sort of time on their hands that those resources um, I, I, a lot of the time stuff more just gets pushed on them than than anything else
1: so before i continue now i want you to tell me a little more about where you ended up because you're here you're doing this advocacy clearly you know but you're actually working on helping people so tell me about that
0: Well, um, my full-time job is in a little treatment program in the mountains of Colorado in Steamboat Springs um, called The Foundry, and we treat men with substance use disorder, alcoholism, drug addictions, etc. And of course, we treat quite a few people for cannabis use disorder. Um, I, I do Multiple other things professionally, uh, like I I help out inside of collegiate and professional athletics as well inside of labor unions, um, building policies, doing crisis intervention, helping them um, really protect the people who are part of those organizations, their mental health and well-being, and um, help when addiction uh, shows itself.
1: Well, so you see a number of different you know, serious addictions by people who check into the foundry, presumably. Um, how is this? How does this THC addiction, which frankly, I really never thought about, you know, I, can't even, I didn't even imagine until I started reading these pieces this year, that, that, that it was a thing. How, how does it manifest? And how is it different from some of these other drugs that you see? Substance use disorder is substance
0: use disorder. It doesn't matter the substance, um, the process. There are people who can get addicted to to processes like gambling. Addiction destroys lives. Addiction guts families. It rots communities from the inside because addiction is... To quote a friend, a radical commitment to escape reality. Addiction is taking a good thing, an ancillary thing, and making it an ultimate thing. Addiction is the foregoing of all else to seek that one thing, and it doesn't matter what the addiction is to. So one of the things that is is really hard for me, frankly, is when I go out in the world and I'll hear people say, well, it's just weed. They're just addicted to weed. And I wish they could see um, what we see every day. Addiction is ugly and devastating. And if you can't stop something, I don't care what it is, it hurts every bit as much and it's lonely and it it really, it rots us from the inside. Addiction to THC, um, I think in a lot of ways, can be more challenging for the individual because if, if, if you said to me, Ben, I've got to stop drinking so much. Ben, I've got to stop shooting heroin. I have to stop smoking meth. M- myself and everybody around me would say, oh, my goodness, of course, yeah, I'm so glad that you've come around and asked for help. If you said, I think I'm smoking too much weed, a lot of the people in your life are going to laugh and say, well, that's not a thing, smoking too much weed. What, what are you talking about? You can't even get addicted to that. So it doesn't enjoy the same sort of societal acceptance towards sobriety that these other things do, which makes it
1: very challenging for the cannabis-dependent patient. How is it possible that there's this huge distance between you know, public perception mm. right, and, and this reality that you're seeing every day?
0: I, I am trying my best to address that in the follow-up book that I'm working on right now. Um, I think it's multifaceted. I think um, one of the things that happened was um, a a very true injustice that happened in this country around drug policy, especially around cannabis. Um, It was made illegal for some very wrong reasons in the late 30s. Um, That led to uh, pushback and activism. These activists genuinely believed in what they were doing. Racial justice getting rid of the inequalities inside of that system um, a a more of a libertarian approach to life don't bother me i won't bother you Um, and that movement was hijacked about 20 years ago by um, organized business under the guise of the drug policy alliance the marijuana policy project um, normal who used to be really in this for the good of the the people they believed, um, decided that there was more money to be made in being a part of selling this stuff than advocating
1: for people to get out of jail. We reached out to Normal, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. Paul Armentano, Normal's Deputy Director, said that the organization advocates for consumers, does not advocate on behalf of commercial interests, and has previously taken positions that are adversarial to those taken by the commercial industry. However, we found a specific advertising request on Normal's website encouraging marijuana businesses to advertise with them. We also found a call to action on their website opposing HB 1317 to regulate marijuana concentrates for safe consumption.
0: You had a movement get hijacked by an industry, and then 20 years of messaging that I think is pretty profound. um, Because when you ask a young person today, the last thing they're going to associate with marijuana is any sort of harm. They have been
1: indoctrinated. How big is this industry? And how concentrated is it, I guess, is the question. So um,
0: the industry in itself in North America is uh, $30 billion this year. The estimates are by 2030 it'll be worth mid 70 billion dollars or they'll do mid 70 billion dollars in commerce. Um, To contextualize that, if we sell 30 billion dollars worth of cannabis this year in North America, we will sell 24 billion dollars worth of books in this country. So we're buying more weed than we are books. We are talking about tens of billions, if not ultimately hundreds of billions, then the international market is certainly controlled by several big players. But I can tell you that almost 85% of the dispensaries in Colorado are owned by 14 men.
1: Hmm. Wow. So ultimately, is it just this legalization or decriminalization, legalization, coupled with these commercialized uh, bills, such as the one in Colorado that essentially created the reality or incentive structures for this—is that how you—is that what you're seeing?
0: Absolutely. The, the The numbers for THC potency were steadily rising, steadily rising, and then we open retail, and they do this because there's nobody a- a looking over their shoulder, making sure that what they're presenting to the public is safe. There, there are no limitations on what they can put out there. They can put any potency they want. So things that five years ago we thought were absolutely impossible to produce. I, I mean, five years ago, the idea of getting more than 30% THC in a plant was laughable. And now we're in the mid-40s. The, the, where we are right now, these products we're consuming, if, if your viewers want to see something interesting, Google something called a distillate which is making up a huge portion of the market in recreational states, this is uh, THC separated at the sub-molecular level just to isolate the Delta-9 THC from it. One protein spike is, is isolated to pull this stuff out. So we gave this industry absolute free reign with no guardrails at all. Science takes time. And, and certainly um, science around cannabis takes real time. And so we, we gave them um, unrestricted access. The more you can sell, the more money you're going to make, the stronger it is, the higher the rates of addiction. And boy, did they take advantage of that. The thing that's always made me um, laugh on my good days, cry on my bad days, is why we thought this would be different than every other vice substance we have tried this with in this country. Alcohol. 80 percent of the booze in this country is consumed by 20 percent of the consumers, the problem users. Tobacco. Uh, It wasn't until we started adding eight times the nicotine to tobacco that we really started bumping into the problems that we've got with it. The opiate crisis we're in today was caused by huge pharmaceutical companies pushing their products on us in order to make more money. Never in this country if we appropriately regulated a vice substance and the idea that we would do it on this one with less infrastructure no fda involvement
1: um, always made me scratch my head it's fascinating because you know one of the themes common on this show uh, over the last few years has been you know regulatory capture essentially right Uh, how big industry has has huge influence Mm -hmm. and Agencies such as the CDC and FDA, like shocking levels that that no many of us weren't aware of at all. But here you're saying that there actually is like no regulation. I mean, is there is there any? There's certainly regulation on the books. Um, the
0: enforcement, there is absolutely none. The, uh, the there was an open records request that demonstrates the difference between how many. Um, checks the marijuana enforcement did versus the alcohol, um, division did in Colorado. I mean, it's, it's like 80 to one, even though the marijuana enforcement division has twice the employees, the idea that in Colorado, we're the thought leaders. Everybody will say, you guys are the best. You've built this regulatory infrastructure. Colorado hasn't independently verified a single test for potency or purity since 2015.
1: We reached out to Colorado's Marijuana Enforcement Division, the MED, to verify this. We are currently in communication and have not yet received a definitive response. The, the whistleblower's name
0: was Sarah Ufer, um, who's become a dear friend, and I hope uh, someone gives her a lab again, because she did amazing work, but she decided to tell the truth and the state shut her down. The, the things that we find in these plants from um, the, the growth accelerators that they use, the um, pesticides that they use. And no one's making sure this is safe. There are pesticides that we find regularly inside of cannabis plants that are not safe for topical animal use. And this is being inhaled by human beings. I, I've written about it. There are a lot of other people who've written extensively about it. But we just don't have the infrastructure for to test for potency or purity, because that's done at a federal level. That's FDA. States are not equipped to do that. If we want to get them there, we need to make a very serious investment in infrastructure.
1: But you just said that it's double the infrastructure in Colorado than the uh alcohol uh, enforcement or or regulation so what are these people doing Um, they're learning on the job so that they can go and work for the cannabis industry
0: colorado's first um, cannabis czar held the job for a year and a half and then um, started a a huge consulting firm teaching people how to take cannabis uh, companies into different states andrew friedman Um, The uh, amount of nepotism that has gone from the Marijuana Enforcement Division into the industry is is enough to make absolutely anybody shake their heads. Marijuana Enforcement Division is well-funded. Marijuana Enforcement Division sits on their hands because they want to make friends with the people inside of the industry. Um, And thanks to uh, my friend Don Reinfeld at
1: Blue Rising in Colorado, a great deal of this has been publicly uh, published. Shannon Gray, the MED's marijuana communications specialist, told us that any state licensing authority and any MED employee is prohibited from working for or getting money from the marijuana industry for six months following their employment with MED. Ms. Gray also noted that Andrew Friedman and other, quote, cannabis czars, technically work for the governor's office, not the MED. However, a quick search on LinkedIn revealed a surprising number of former MED employees who currently work for private marijuana-related business. (laughs) What has been the response of the industry to your work? I once got offered a significant contract
0: um, by a, a company that said that they'd like me to consult with them on how to do things the right way, which I interpreted as stop talking. Um... I didn't take that contract. The marijuana industry in Colorado and nationwide is playing a very simple and predictable game. Um, The slippery slope argument, something I've always thought is pretty silly. Any threat to what we do now ultimately will lead in taking away all access to this again. They won't be checked. They won't allow any sort of rational um, lawmaking. For example, House Bill 1317 in Colorado, which passed last year, was an attempt to put any kind of potency cap on THC in Colorado. We would have taken 80%. We would have taken 95% just because it was a cap. And the lower the potency, the fewer the problems we have. Conversely, the lower the potency, the lower the addiction rates. So they had no interest in that. House Bill 1317, in the end, what we were able to do was to get the School of Medicine in Colorado to do um, a review of all of the data that's out there and then suggest um, what could be a cap down down the road. There was no cap associated with it. They even fought back, I mean, tooth and nail, they fought back on the warnings that went on the concentrate packages, um, including, here's an interesting one for you. The warnings that come with every purchase of concentrate, uh, which was what I was talking about before, those distillates, those intense forms of THC. um, Easy way to think about it. Concentrates are to cannabis what crack is to coca. It's a highly refined byproduct. These brochures that you have to get whenever you purchase a concentrate have a visual identification of what a serving is, which is half the size of a rice grain they have that printed on the sheet. That's how you're supposed to tell. And they also have number for the National Suicide Hotline as well as the uh, Poison Control in Colorado. How many other products we got out there? Have the suicide hotline and the poison control listed on them, and when you when you go to the dispensaries, the owners, the lobbyists, there are about fifty lobbyists who showed up on the Colorado Hill when we were trying to pass this bill. And the thing that they would consistently say was, "You can't prove that it's unsafe." We would say, "Well, of course we can." Actually, systematically, and they would say, "Well, there's no science," and and there isn't because. Humankind has never studied anything more than about a 20% THC potency because it's three years old. The ridiculousness of that proposal, though, why should the burden of proof of safety be on the consumer?
1: Shouldn't it be on the supplier? Well, so, so what is the law around that? I mean, the burden is on the side of the consumer here? Yeah, because
0: of how cannabis was defined. Uh, words really matter. Um, and this was another big thing I latched onto in Amendment 64 was the actual definition of cannabis. Mm. Um, cannabis isn't defined as the plant and the genus, etc. Cannabis is defined as, and I quote, "every salt, derivative, extract, and concentrate from the cannabis plant." So it's not cannabis; it's anything you can extract from cannabis, and then anything you can make with those extractions becomes legally defined as cannabis so that means that the the crystal clear rock that's that you smoke in a glass pipe or a superheated needle just put this stuff into youtube um is considered cannabis in colorado
1: even though it comes in
0: rock form
1: why does that create a situation where the onus on you know, proving lack of safety is on the side of the consumer or the advocates.
0: Because, well, I think because we said cannabis is legal, there's no way to say that you can't sell a thing if that's how
1: it's defined. So you say that Colorado is sort of the thought leader um, in this. You know, there are legalization initiatives in five more states, I believe, in just, in just a few days. Or be actually, even as we show this hmm. this episode, they may have been voted on. I don't know how it's going to play out. So what does that look like? Are these commercialization initiatives, actually? Every single one of them. Mm-hmm.
0: You bet. Even the medical ones are. Uh, we, we have to remember that someone who's still very involved in this, Keith Stroop, the original founder of Normal, um, was quoted directly as saying, we will use medical marijuana as a red herring to usher in recreational marijuana. Um, it's always been the plan. So when med is on the ballot, the idea is to get to rec. Um, and when it's limited, the idea is always recreational, uh, for sure. Okay, explain that to me. Um, Anytime we are asked to consider or vote on any form of medicinal marijuana, the end goal for the people putting this together is recreational marijuana because there's just not enough money to be made in medical marijuana. If there was, we, we would have ended quite some time ago. Um, I'm really glad that there are people who, it's a small section of people who are really benefiting, but I'm very glad that people are benefiting and that they're getting access to cannabis-derived medications. Um, but the idea always is to use medical then desensitize us a little bit and bring in recreational. Um, for, for example, it's happening in Georgia right now, one of the states that's looking at medical. Um, the main proponents behind that bill in Georgia are multi-state operators out of Florida. Those multi-state operators out of Florida um, started with just medical in Florida. All of the messaging was medical, 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 and then as soon as medical passed, the emphasis went towards recreational, because there's
1: 20 times the market. And so what states has this Colorado model, which I guess was the beginning, been replicated in already?
0: Well, quite a few of them has followed similar. Um, The big issue is the definition of cannabis, and everybody's used to the same one. So there's nobody who's really deviated from this definition of cannabis, which includes concentrated cannabis. Exceptions to it are probably easier to note. Vermont has tried it a little bit differently. Um, I appreciate the approach too. It's more of a a co-op, less commercialized um, exchange, and they capped the potency of the plant. Unfortunately, until you cap the potency of the products, that's just window dressing. Um, Oregon has done it a little bit differently and a little bit better again, more of a co-op style and very limited licenses, pretty much everybody else has followed suit with similar laws. The laws are written by the same people. The laws are written by the Drug Policy Alliance um, lobbyists. The laws are written by Mason Tavert and the Marijuana Policy Project. They're all written by the same people. So
1: you're painting this picture for me of a At first I was thinking a Wild West where you can do anything, but it's a kind of a corporatized Wild West where the corporations can do anything. What are the restrictions on kids accessing this stuff that we're talking about?
0: You can only purchase uh, 21 and over, and um, the House bill that I mentioned before, 1317, makes it quite a bit harder for kids um, between the ages of 18 and 20 um, to get medical cards. Because what we found was most of the young people who were developing problems and ending up in treatment and ending up in the hospitals um, were getting their THC from people with medical cards. So it would be that 18-year-old who was still in high school, could get a, a card, didn't need any parental involvement, and could purchase quite a bit and then come back and resell it. Um, So technically, access is
1: restricted to everybody under 21 recreationally. And how does that translate to the cases that are actually seen of addiction?
0: The idea that fewer kids will use something if it's sanctioned by society and readily available in 2,000 storefronts in the state doesn't pass the giggle test. When I, I started smoking cigarettes at 13, Well, I couldn't buy cigarettes legally. Come on. You get
1: stuff in a commercial market and and things that are that easy, they're going to get it. You mentioned earlier in the interview that there's actually like a suicide hotline number that comes with some of these products. So how did that actually happen if suicide is apparently not an issue officially? I don't think anybody would be willing to say it's not
0: except for the industry. Um, I mean, this has affected lawmakers' lives. Uh, I've spoken to lots of them uh, in Colorado, whose kids um, develop an addiction to high-potency THC, who have lost friends, loved ones, family members to suicide. Um, But so long as there are billions of dollars being made, you're going to have a huge incentive for people to push back on anything that would look like the tying of those two. The correlation
1: can't be denied. So how many people are there like you nationwide? <laughs> um, you know, you're in Colorado. You've got a small network of people. But how does that look uh, across the country?
0: There are more and more of us. Um, there's an organization here In Washington, D.C., um, I sit on the board of directors called SAM, Smart Approaches to Marijuana. It's uh, extremely bipartisan, founded by David Frum and Patrick Kennedy, uh, with Kevin Sabet, um, who is an advisor to three White Houses, running it now. Um, There are lots of people who are starting to come up and speak about this. Unfortunately, we didn't heed the warnings of the professionals at the beginning who said, if you do this then this will happen but now that this is happening there are so many more people who who are willing to step up and push back and fight um the group of coloradans who pushed through health spill 1317 the lawmakers who did it it was completely bipartisan it was both republican and democrat was did my heart good to see But the reason why they got there was because their lives had been so dramatically affected by it. Remember the old adage that um, a smart man learns from his mistakes and a wise man from the mistakes of others? I wish more people would look at some of the mistakes we've made on this issue and say, um, maybe we'll try another way. Maybe the ultra-liberalization of drug laws is not the way to go. Maybe allowing for the use of everything and writing off addiction again treating it like a nothing issue, um, becoming Portland, becoming Seattle, becoming San Francisco as a nation, hobbling our drug courts, uh, making it impossible for law enforcement to do their jobs in a lot of ways, maybe that's not the best way. Maybe the war on drugs wasn't, certainly wasn't. But this this pendulum swing in the other direction to where all things are permissible, and now all things are being driven by corporate interests, that's
1: not the solution either. What legislation needs to happen? I was sitting in an office in the
0: Colorado Capitol building, and um,
1: you always know it's
0: going to get spicy when the lawmaker kicks everybody out of the room and closes the door. This lawmaker said when everybody left, what's the science actually going to come back at? Where are we going to be able to say cannabis is safe? And the simple answer to that is there's no safe amount. That's easy, but it, it, anything below 8% is going to have very minimal negative effects on the human brain and body, especially if it's got CBD in it. So if you wanna never develop an issue with cannabis, just keep it under 8%. As soon as we hit double digits, we start to get into trouble very simply put in the summary of a lot of science. I would take a potency cap at 95% because 95% is less harmful than 99. I would take a potency cap at 80. So let's kick the industry lobbyists out of the rulemaking committees. Let's stop letting Philip Morris sit at the table trying to determine how to regulate tobacco, so to speak. And let's put a common sense potency limit on everything that's going on in this country until all of the research soundly tells us what's safe and
1: isn't safe. And what does the industry say in response to this?
0: Well, when they're done complaining that we can't prove that it's unsafe, which again, we systematically can, We just can't prove that 99% is safe. What we can show you is how much worse 16% is than 12 and how much worse 20 is than 16. So pretty simple logic to continue to follow here. What they say is you will simply drive that into the black market, that the the demand exists. So if you don't let us do it, you'll drive it into the unregulated black market. My answer to that is simple. Your market is unregulated. You have chemicals, growth accelerators, pesticides, not butane, propane, isopropathol that's being found in your products every day of every week. Your product's not safe. And would I rather it in the black market? You better believe I would because I've never seen a drug dealer run a two-for-one special or have coupons. I get coupons in the mail to my house. I have books of coupons that i pick up in boulder with my buy one get one free offers my apps that track my purchases and give me points so after x amount i can get free concentrates would i rather have it in the black market oh yeah give me a drug dealer to a corporate executive with an mba
1: any day the thing that is kind of stunning to me is that you know in this black market of drug dealing as many uh, drugs out there, for example, there's all sorts of stuff that's, for example, laced with fentanyl. So people would say, I can imagine, yeah, okay, maybe it's not the best, but at least it's not going to be laced with fentanyl and kill someone. How how do you respond to that? Correct. I agree. Okay, but you still take the unregulated black market over this?
0: Absolutely, any day. If it's, it's either all or nothing, let's either bring it all into the light and truly regulate it and put, put forth quality controls. Um, I, I've written a chapter in the new book on exactly how to do this. Um, it's a multi-billion dollar infrastructure investment, but it could be done. We either bring it all into the daylight and we take real responsibility for making sure that it's safe. What would be the sort
1: of the key elements of this plan that you're outlining?
0: Testing facilities. Um, so the most important thing, because um, testing cannabis is a little bit involved. You need some um, fairly real lab. I mean, the applied science is not um, minor, and you need precursors, et cetera. So to, to test the plant and the products in any sort of timely manner, you'd have to have uh, testing facilities all over the country. They couldn't just be regionally. You'd have to have them in some places in two states. I went to New Zealand a couple years ago to advise them on how to do this and I said that they would probably need four on each island. Um, So if you have enough testing facilities, then what will happen is you determine what a representative sample is and everybody sends that in, probably about 5%. So 5% of the product is lost off the bat because it's tested. But the reason why you have to have so many facilities is you have to be able to get back to the manufacturer quickly to say that product's good or that product's not good. You can't have a backlog of two years like we've got in Colorado right now where, you know, it's the, we get back to when we're like, oh, hey, that had pesticides in it. And they're like, yeah, that's been off the shelf for a year and a half. We sold it a year and a half ago. It's not even in anybody's stash boxes anymore. Um, So the testing facilities really is the key. The next thing after that is the tax structure. Um, A much greater mind than my own, a gentleman named Mark Kleiman, a professor who unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago, who was a staunch advocate for legalization, spent his career trying to determine what an appropriate, the end of his career, what an appropriate tax rate would be for cannabis to pay for the problems that it caused without driving it back into the black market. So we'd have to determine what uh, nationwide tax would be, and it's probably going to be about forty percent, um, which is to to cover everything that we need to do with it. And then we need a governing regulatory agency, be that FDA, ATF, or a, an additional um,
1: part of the federal government that's created. And uh, so, you know, viewers of this show will, and and myself will ask the question: Well, how does this? agency prevent uh, itself from being captured by industry as many other in- agencies have been
0: oh, You ask a very deep question and I think my answer for that is that's a much larger question than cannabis um, How do we Prevent corruption to begin with well? The, I don't know that the human experience will allow for that at this point in our growth But I've often um, argued that good should not be the enemy of perfect. Mm -hmm. I will take a move in the right direction. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be sewn up for me.
1: Well, Ben Court, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Thank you all for joining Ben Court and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya (music) Kelleck.